great to be with you here this weekend uh, today uh, for this conference. And uh, Pastor had asked me to talk about apologetics. And when we think of apologetics, we often think of 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15. And that will be a text that we'll look at very briefly to kind of introduce the topic. And then we have uh, four different topics uh, throughout the day related to the kind of looking at that from a historical perspective, and then the meaning of life, kind of more of a philosophical uh, perspective there. And we also talk in the end about the problem of evil. And then we will talk about in between the New Testament canon and how do we know we have the right books, as it were, inside the New Testament canon, another kind of more of a historical topic. And so this morning, our discussion will be a living hope, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And of course, the resurrection is a key aspect of the gospel itself. As 1 Corinthians 15 talks about, that the gospel includes the resurrection of Christ. So first of all, that he died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried, and on the third day, he rose again according to the scriptures, and he was seen. He appeared uh, to his disciples. And when we think of the topic of apologetics, uh, as we discuss these four sessions, they're laid out there upon the screen, a living hope, the resurrection of Christ, a compelling hope, the meaning of life, a scriptural hope, the recognition of the canon, and a realistic hope, the problem of evil. They also appear then in your bulletins for today. I mentioned 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 is a key text because it actually has in the original language the word apologia, from which we get the word apologetics. But it says, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and with fear. And I believe you got little postcards, uh, nice colorful postcards with that verse upon it there inside your bulletins. And this verse reminds us of a couple of key aspects of the field of apologetics. First of all, the person of the apologist. It's someone who has set aside the Lord Jesus Christ in his heart. It's interesting every other time the verb sanctify, which is the word set apart, is found in the New Testament. It's God, a member of the Trinity, who is the one who is the subject of the verb to set apart, to sanctify, where the Father or the Holy Spirit, for example. But this is the one exception to that rule in the New Testament in which we set apart the Lord Jesus Christ in our hearts. Of course, we don't make him any more holy than he is. He's absolutely, perfectly holy, but we set him as aside in our hearts. And it speaks of the preparation of the apologist. He is always ready to give an account, a reason for the hope that is within him or within her as the apologist. And then the position of the apologist is one of defense. The word apologia is a word that means a defensive speech. It's actually used in law court situations in the book of Acts. And the apostle Paul gives those types of speeches. In fact, in the book of Acts, there are more words tied to apologist type speeches in the book of Acts than evangelistic speeches, even because the end of the book of Acts uh, contains quite a number of Paul's speeches before Roman authorities, for example, defending um, himself before them. It also gives us the purpose of apologetics. And so if we remind ourselves that we are always to be ready to give a reason for the hope that is within us. And so the idea here is that uh, other people ask us questions and our purpose is to be able to give them a reason for the hope that we have found in Christ through the gospel. And then the practice of apologetics, it says with meekness, with gentleness, and with fear. So those are the facets of the apologetic task in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. Now, it's interesting, in the wider context of this verse, 
Verse 15 is the one that has the word that's key that we get our English word apologetics from, the Greek word apologia, which is simply the word defense. It's found quite a number of other times in the New Testament. Philippians chapter 1, for example, says that I am set apart for the defense and confirmation of the gospel. And this is the same word that's found there in Philippians chapter 1. In this context, in verses 14 and 17, it refers to faithfulness in the midst of suffering. So 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14 As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance. I'm sorry, that's chapter 1. I meant to read chapter 3, verse 14. 314. But, and if you suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye, and be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. So here we have the idea of suffering for righteousness' sake. In fact, in the wider context of this epistle of Peter, he stresses, don't suffer, quote, suffer because of unrighteousness, the do desert, as it were, for doing things that are wrong or even criminal, but make sure it's for righteousness' sake. And then verse 17, after our key text says, for it is better if the will of God be so that you suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. So here we have the concept of suffering again. In fact, if you're to work out this passage more kind of exegetically, looking at the text itself, you wouldn't really have a strong sense that the word apologia in this context is talking about having these amazing rational arguments for the Christian faith. It's actually apologetics is tied to the faithful living that causes people to ask us questions about the hope that is within us and especially faithfulness in the midst of suffering, which is a theme of the entire book of 1 Peter. And so that's really a more of the, the contextual sense of the concept of apologia within the epistle of Peter. And verse 18 goes on then to talk about, For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened or made alive by the Spirit. And that word made alive, it's, it's a compound word. It's obviously the idea of life. And then the verb to make, so to make alive, referring to the resurrection of Christ. And that is the foundation then for our hope. You can go back to chapter 1 and verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again into a lively hope or a living hope. And why is it living? Why is it a lively hope? It's because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So I thought it would be good this morning to begin our first session with a look about the historical evidences for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. First of all, some contextual issues here. One is the issue of the definition of miracle. We'll talk about various historical facts uh, this morning in this session, but I think we all understand that we interpret facts within hermeneutical frameworks. That is, we don't come to facts with a blank slate. We already come with a framework of mind or a worldview in mind by which we interpret facts, and this is true of, of course, various fields of human endeavor and various fields of human knowledge. It's also true in the sense of the resurrection with a concept of a miracle. So some people would make it sound as if a miracle is something that um, violates or opposes natural law. But strictly speaking, of course, natural law is a descriptive facet. That is that we see how things function and then we describe that through the language of natural law. If there is someone who created the cosmos... He is actually the lawgiver, as it were, of nature. And so it's not so much him entering into something from the outside and then violating or opposing it. It's actually him supervening and stepping within his own creation and that he is 
uh, more powerful than the laws that he himself has put into place. So to think kind of an easy example of that, if I were to uh, hold this pencil here, let's say, uh, with my left hand, and then I drop it, and then I catch it, okay, does that mean that the law of gravity has been violently opposed and overcome? Because I caught it. I didn't fall all the way to the ground. You would say, no, the law of gravity is still working. It says there was a different law at work that was, had more force than the law of gravity at the moment. And if God is omnipotent and all-powerful and the creator, as the Bible speaks of him being, it's actually the fact that he is uh, stepping into his own creation and supervening. And we would call that a miracle. So it's not so much a, a violent opposition because it's his own laws. But it's him more powerfully supervening. And so when we talk about the historical um, evidences for the resurrection this morning, we are acknowledging that people uh, with a heart of unbelief will see that differently than those with a heart of belief because we don't, uh, we don't approach the historical evidences neutrally um, as we discuss those. But the Bible itself talks about that Jesus Christ, after he appeared, showed himself to be alive by many infallible proofs, it says, in the book of Acts and chapter 1. I also think we need to understand the context of the resurrection. It didn't come out of the blue, as it were, and, and suddenly there were these apostles running around talking how they had seen the risen Christ, but there were historical events leading up to that. And these events included the very unique character of Jesus Christ, that he was unusual. He was not like any other rabbi at the time period. And we see this in the Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5 through 7 of Matthew. If you were to ask the average rabbi what he thought of something, he would usually quote another rabbi from the past and would say, well, as Rabbi Hillel says this, or Shammai says this, but Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 5, he even says, but you have heard from them of old, thou shalt not commit adultery, or thou shalt not murder, which of course he's quoting the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, and then he says, but I say unto you, so you think of, you know, like a key text within Judaism would be Exodus 20 with the Ten Commandments. And he says, this is what it says from of old. Moses has taught this, but I say to you. And at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, therefore, it says the people were amazed because he taught as one having authority and not like the scribes and Pharisees. So we have to understand his character. We have to understand his teaching and his very unique teaching ministry, as well as, of course, his um, miraculous life work up to that point, and then his claims of being one with the Father. And, uh, for example, when one thinks of the trial of Jesus, and they keep peppering him with questions, are you the Christ, are you the Son of the living God? And he ends up saying, after being silent like a lamb for quite a while, he ends up saying, uh, what you say is right, and you will see the Son of Man coming with power and great glory. He seems to be alluding to Daniel chapter 7. And what is the response of the leadership at that point? They accuse him of blasphemy because they understand the import of what he is claiming at that point. Well, uh, one thing to consider in the issue of epistemology is this uh, a large word that simply means a study of knowledge, how we know things. And there are often facets in life in which we are not like the experimenter that we get to take objects and we put them into a scientific laboratory and we get to manipulate them. They actually would say that we know things because someone has told us something. And so, for example, maybe growing up, uh, you listen to teachers and they taught you knowledge. 
And so you would say, I know what the capital of Massachusetts is, let's say, because my teacher said it was Boston. Or perhaps you could say that you know something because you've heard it in the news. But when we use the language of knowing in these contexts, we're really trusting witnesses who are telling us things because they're telling us things that uh, we can't like put into a scientific laboratory and manipulate to our own purposes. And it's interesting, the concept of the resurrection is similar in that Christ himself had chosen apostles to be his witnesses in the book of Acts. And so what, what do we make of this concept of witnesses? We could ask some questions of witnesses in general, not just in this context, but in general, do the witnesses notably or gravely contradict one another? In other words, if we are at a scene, a crime scene, let's say, to use a modern example, an illegal uh, case study, and there are people who gravely and notably contradict each other, we would say, well, someone's not entirely telling us the truth here. Now, this is different than simply sharing different perspectives of the same event, right? And these are notable and grave contradictions. So let's say that we are in a legal context and there's an automobile accident, and so here is the intersection, and a person standing here says, well, I, I saw this car, and it had um, red paint on the car. And a person over here says, well, I saw a car, and its uh, front driver bumper was kind of like blue or something. You say, well, that, that's, that's a contradiction. But actually, if this was a car that had been kind of fixed at a cheap rate in the past and they replaced a panel of the car with a blue panel just because it was the cheapest thing and they didn't take time yet to repaint it red, uh, it's not a grave and notable contradiction. It's actually seeing it from a different perspective. We could also ask the question, are the witnesses predisposed by bias? And uh, this is fascinating because if you understand the biblical account, that the apostles themselves, after the crucifixion of Christ, they're actually in despondency. They're actually uh, quite sad, and, and they are like uh, wondering, is this the end of it all? They weren't disposed, per se, um, to become the witnesses that we know that they were after being filled with the Holy Spirit. In fact, on your own, you can look through Mark chapter 8, 9, and 10. In the middle of all the chapters, it's when Jesus Christ, after Peter's confession, and Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, he says, now I'm going to Jerusalem to be crucified and rise again. And Peter says what? He says, yes, Lord, that's the gospel. What does he say? He says, don't do it, Lord. And he's like, get thee behind me, Satan. Uh, because they don't yet fully understand the true role of the Messiah at that point. So they're not predisposed to bias. Have the witnesses been habitually characterized by honesty? And to add to that, um, are the witnesses prone to collusion? And this is where it is interesting with my example of the intersection and the car accident and so on. If you read carefully the different gospels and their narratives about the resurrection of Christ and his appearances, it's pretty obvious that uh, these aren't like just complete collusion between them. And like we've got to say everything's just exactly the same because they're giving different details uh, from each other. And so it's actually quite the opposite approach. Is there a sufficient number of witnesses? And here, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 talks about how Jesus Christ appeared to James and to Peter and to 500 at one time. So, for example, there are some who put forward theories of a, uh, a hypnosis or a vision-like theory in which he didn't really rise from the dead, but uh, people just had some type of experience uh, mentally 
uh, psychologically because, you know, there's even a book in the past about a great mushroom theory and they got poisoned by mushrooms or another theory that they got drunk and so on. But to imagine 500 people at the same time at the same event sharing uh, the same experience of seeing the risen Christ would work against such a theory. And are the witnesses honest even to the point of personal sacrifice? And according to uh, tradition of the 12 original apostles, and we'll take Judas off, so now we're down to 11, all but one of them actually died for his faith and became a martyr for his faith. So if there was an issue of collusion and they're working together and they came up with some type of fictional story and they're going to agree on that, you would expect there to be quite a bit of pressure at some point for one of them to cave in and say, nope, we made this all up. I'm not giving my life for this idea. But in fact, all of them were willing to suffer at great personal sacrifice. And so we come to some historical evidences for the resurrection. Um, I have about 15 of these, and they have been developed and adapted from Gary Habermas's work on the minimal facts approach, in which he has about a dozen. And so I've increased that and added some more and worked on them on my own, etc. So we'll kind of rapidly go through these. Jesus was crucified by expert Romans. <clears throat> the Romans were good at what they did, including crucifixion. And so uh, we know that crucifixion was reserved for very poor people, for non-citizens, especially for slaves and other socioeconomically deprived people who had done a treasonous work against the government in particular. And so as Cicero would talk about back in the Roman Republic time period, not even should the Roman citizen not be fearful of crucifixion. He should not even talk about it. It should not be upon his tongue and his mouth. And he shouldn't even think about it because it is so low, so beneath uh, the task of a Roman citizen. But it was used for non-citizens, and it was used to humiliate them. And it was a very public event, therefore. They were often crucified along roadsides or on hilltops so that people could see them from afar. And it was meant to be humiliating to them and to their families. But the Romans were good at what they did. In fact, we know, you can see this even in the gospel accounts, how they would go by, and if they weren't dead yet, and they wanted to rapidly uh, hasten their demise, they could break their legs, legs for example, because death often actually happened by asphyxiation um, or the inability to breathe in the midst of crucifixion. His corpse, says Jesus' corpse, was never produced. It's fascinating. There are no accounts, even from the contemporary time period, among the enemies of early Christianity, its opponents, that claim they had the body. So when we think of like one of the earliest alternate or the earliest alternate theory that we are exposed to as far as the, the Jewish leadership saying his body had been stolen, it's not like the Jews had a, the body and said, here it is, they stole it, we got it back from them. There is no one who claims that they have possession of the corpse of Jesus Christ. Jesus did not continue in Israel indefinitely after his crucifixion. So we don't have any accounts about how Jesus, three years later, five years later, how he came back and he was still walking around Jerusalem or walking around Judea, Galilee, and ministering uh, to other people. He did not continue in Israel indefinitely after his crucifixion. His disciples were initially in despair, and we talked about this. It's not like the disciples initially were completely full of hope and courage, and they remembered what Christ had said, and they were anticipating with exhilaration the moment of the resurrection, but actually quite the opposite, that they were living in fear after the, the crucifixion. They were probably scared for their own lives even, and wondering if the authorities, the religious and the political authorities, might be coming for them as well, and they were living in the midst of despair. 
and his disciples' lives dramatically changed several days later. So we have to have some type of explanation of this drastic shift in the lives of these disciples who were in the midst of despondency and despair and were suddenly filled with courage and with hope to the point of being willing to die and suffer greatly uh, for their proclamation. The disciples reported seeing Jesus as risen again. At this point, I'm wording this uh, purposefully in like a neutral manner, as it were, that they reported that they had seen Jesus risen again. It's fascinating if you look at, for example, the Jewish historian Josephus. There is a paragraph in Josephus. It's called the Testimonium Flavianum because his name is Flavius Josephus. There are, there are quite a number of debates about that paragraph, what the original wording would have been. Because in the, in the Greek, it says some things that it's really hard to consider a non-Messianic Jew like Josephus actually saying. And the Arabic version is quite different than the Greek version. Um, let's just kind of say for a moment that the Arabic version in some manner is closer to like what the original might have been. It, it says that the disciples reported that Jesus had risen again. It doesn't say that he did because it would be hard to be a non-Messianic Jew and simply say that. You'd be moving toward being a Messianic Jew if you believe that Jesus of Nazareth had risen again. But we have historical evidence that the disciples reported that. We also have, uh, for example, some second century a uh, Greek satirist who would go around making fun of people. One in particular, I'm thinking of Lucian of Samosata, who would similarly talk about the growth of early Christianity and how they had reported that their crucified hero and founder um, lived again. Seventh, among the earliest witnesses were women. There is agreement about this among the four Gospels. Now, like our illustration of the automobile accident, they won't discuss all of the same names. They may say women without giving all of the names, or some of them will give um, fullness of a couple of names, and one gospel may just refer to the one Mary. But what they all agree on is that the women were the earliest witnesses. And why is this important? Because if you were to make up the account of the resurrection, if you were to have the opportunity to fictionalize it, to make it out of whole cloth, just make it up, you wouldn't say that women were the first to see the risen Christ because they did not have the legal power in a courtroom situation to be listened to as witnesses. And if you wanted to fabricate it and make it the best possible story, you wouldn't actually have women in that historical social context be the earliest witnesses. But historically speaking, this is stated across the board. Eighth, among the earliest church leaders was James the Just, so he is known in Hegesippus, a second century historian, as James the Righteous or James the Just. This would be uh, seen as the, the traditional author of the book of James. Um, so uh, not James the Apostle, not James the son of Zebedee or James the Lesser, but a different James, uh, the, the half-brother of Jesus according to um, most reconstructions of that. Number nine, the early believer, uh, believers, that's a typo there, proclaimed that Jesus was the conqueror of death and the grave. And this was a common theme in the very earliest layers of the Christian proclamation. 
that Jesus Christ had conquered death and the grave. Whether you go to the traditional materials that appear in Paul but precede Paul, he's incorporated. And if you think chronologically, the order of the New Testament documents, the books and what they're written in, so not canonically, not the order they appear in our Bibles, but chronologically, this would be among the earliest of the New Testament books. And then they are already borrowing from early, by charismatic, I just mean like proclamation material that highlighted and focused Christ conquering the death and the grave. This resurrection became a basic proclamation of the early Christian kerygma. So here again, kerygma just means proclamation. And if there's consistency across the various authors of the New Testament on um, any issue, it's this issue that Jesus Christ died and rose again. So whether it's the Johannine writings, John's writings, Pauline writings, Paul's writings, or then the general epistles in the book of Acts, obviously the gospels themselves, uh, what they would all agree on is upon this basic sense that the core of the Christian proclamation included the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Eleventh, the early church was motivated and emboldened by its belief in Jesus' resurrection. It's not only the 12 apostles, but others, uh, such as the apostle Paul, who was willing to be, of course, beaten, is willing to be whipped, to be shipwrecked, to be incarcerated. Uh, Ultimately, he was martyred for his faith. If you want it kind of like Paul's resume, you can look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11, in which he lists all the times that he was shipwrecked and beaten, whipped, incarcerated. And actually, in that list... There are more incidents, more events than the book of Acts, for example. So the book of Acts is selective history, and it ends at a period in time, of course, as well. But 2 Corinthians has a fuller listing, at least in just name form, of the various sufferings that the Apostle Paul went through. And then beyond that, just everyday believers in the early church who were invigorated by this good news that Jesus Christ had conquered death and allowed them to not be fearful of death. So I'm thinking now of Marcus Aurelius, who was a Roman emperor in the 150s, so we're the mid-2nd century now, 160s. And in his meditations, he is a Stoic philosopher. He's a pagan philosopher, a follower of the Stoic system, including Epictetus, a famous philosopher. But he praises the early Christians because he says, just like the Stoics, they don't have a fear of death. Uh, But he says, I I praise him for that fact, but what I don't like is their histrionic approach. They're too emotional at the point of death. He says, they're singing hymns when they're becoming martyrs, and they're actually joyful at the point of death. So it actually goes beyond stoicism, which if you understand that word, is kind of like, you know, we we think of someone stoic today. They don't show emotion. But even the Roman emperor by the mid-2nd century recognized how the belief in the afterlife because Christ had conquered death invigorated the early Christians. Twelfth, the disciples were willing to die for their belief in the risen Jesus. We've talked about that. Thirteenth, the Christian day of worship became Sunday in celebration of the resurrection. And so we have some uh, kind of reflections of that inside the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 16. When you come together on the first day of the week, bring your offerings there. We have a reference to the Lord's Day in Revelation chapter 1, but especially even more so in what's the so-called apostolic fathers, which according to uh, various traditions would be the generation after the apostles. Some of them talk about the first day of the week or uh, the worship on Sunday. And uh, they also uh, talk about, in fact, the eighth day, which sounds kind of odd because only seven days in a week. 
But when you have one week and then the next week starts again, that's day eight. It's the beginning of the next week. And so with the resurrection kind of being this brand newness uh, to life and what God is doing in the created realm, um, they actually would refer to it also as the eighth day of the week. And so there are various documents that would talk about that. And if you're thinking sociologically, how um, religions end up with strong traditions, right, that you do over and over again. And one of those would be what day of the week you actually assemble to corporately worship. And so this is a huge shift coming out of Judaism with Sabbath, Saturday being the day of worship. So historians have to have some type of explanation of why early Christianity moves to Sunday away from a very set day of the week that's even found in the Ten Commandments as far as Saturday, the, the seventh day being the day of worship. Fourteenth, early Christians ceased involvement in the Jewish sin sacrificial system and moved away from the law being the locus of one's relationship to God. Now, this was not in every case immediate because you see this working its way out in the book of Acts in this transition, right? So you see Acts 15 and they have the Jerusalem assembly in which they discussed was it necessary to be circumcised, to be in right relationship with God, etc.? But they've moved away from the sin-sacrificial system tied to the temple. The book of Hebrews, of course, is key to that. The destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 was an important historical event tied to that because the temple was then uh, destroyed. And there has to be some explanation for this newness of worship that would not include uh, the sin-sacrificial system. And there was a changed Saul of Tarsus that we know as the Apostle Paul that claimed to have seen the risen Jesus. That comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We'll delve into that a little bit more fully here in just a moment. What I'd like to do at this point is to kind of take a side trip very briefly and think through some alternative theories that would not believe Jesus actually rose from the dead. But they have to deal with all of the evidences, the 15, and, and we could add more, that I've just listed for us here this morning. So what would be some of those theories? One would be the swoon theory. If you've never heard of the swoon theory, this is the idea that Jesus Christ didn't fully die, that he was simply unconscious. So he was greatly harmed, but he wasn't dead. And then somehow the disciples got a hold of him, they resuscitated him, and uh, then he came back uh, to full uh, consciousness, and he continued to work and to minister among the disciples. What we'll see, though, is every one of these theories runs up against some of the historical evidences I have just listed. So what historical evidences does this theory run up against? We'll be one example. And one would be the Romans were experts at crucifixion. That would be one. Also that we don't have accounts of him continuing for years later still ministering there in Israel. But especially the one of the Romans would be a key one that this runs up against. Another theory is the mistaken identity theory. That is that uh, the disciples are walking around Jerusalem and they see around town that someone looks a lot like Jesus of Nazareth. And they're like, oh, that must be Jesus. He rose again from the dead. But that also runs up against historical evidences that we have just put on the table. So, for example, uh, no one produced the corpse. So if, if you see someone else, he looks like Jesus. Oh, that's Jesus. And if the Jews then still had the corpse, it would be easy simply to produce that and say, that's not Jesus. We still have the body. So that would be an example of uh, historical evidences being at work there. The hallucination theory, which is that uh, people, through perhaps just trauma, of the, psych the psychological 
response to that, they believe that they had seen the risen Jesus, or at other times, as I mentioned, it's more tied to claims about addiction or, or chemical issues tied to that, and they saw the risen Christ. But this runs up against various historical evidences. For example, we gave a number that's found in 1 Corinthians 15, but also how you had similar experiences among people at the same event, even in smaller pockets of number. So you're thinking just at that point, just logically about the mathematics of, say, 11 people thinking they're seeing the same thing at the same event is much, much more difficult than simply one person having a psychological response to the phenomena in his or her mind. The mistaken tomb theory, and this is that these women went to the wrong tomb, they found it empty, and so they're like, he's not here, so he must be risen from the dead. And this also would run up against various facets of the theory, of the historical evidences, rather, including the non-production of uh, the corpse, for example. The displaced body theory, um, and this is that uh, simply that his body had kind of, they lost track of it, and it kind of disappeared somehow. The conspiracy theory, which is, of course, the earliest one that's already put forward by the religious leaders of the day, and then uh, the, the Roman leaders, and, and they're talking together that the disciples had stolen the body and that they had come up with a theory. But here, too, it runs up against various evidences. For example, if you're going to come up with a story and lie about it, why would you have women be the first ones who are there at the tomb, which wouldn't be your, your first modus operandi inside of that historical context. And of course, the resurrection itself, um, we, we have it listed here, but this would be, in Christian faith, this would be the explanation of all of those historical evidences, and it is the proclamation of the early Christian faith, the kerygma, and of the gospel. And it fits with all of those various evidences we have listed. Well, let's narrow down to one particular person here for the last 10 minutes or so, and that is the case of Saul or of Paul. He had been a Pharisaic Jew in Philippians chapter 3 and verses 4 through 5. So Philippians chapter 3 and verses 4 through 5 talk about his background when he's talking about how it was all rubbish to him later after his conversion to Christ, though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath, where if he might trust in the flesh, I more, circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee. Now, why is that important? Because unlike the Sadducees, <coughs> Pharisees did believe in the concept of a resurrection. And in their resurrection hope, it was a bodily resurrection. This was the background of the Apostle Paul. And so we don't have any sense that now as a Christian, when he's using the word raised or risen or resurrection, that he's using it in a way that's differing from his background as if it's some spiritual or visionary event alone without a bodily resurrection. He seems to be using it in continuity with his past, including his past specifically as a Pharisee. He persecuted the church. We see this in the same chapter, Philippians chapter 3, verse 6. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. He is not, as it were, predisposed to believe that Jesus of Nazareth rose again from the dead. In fact, he's actually killing people uh, prior to his conversion, uh, people who believed that gospel message. And, of course, he was on his road, on his way, on the road to Damascus uh, when he encountered the risen Christ he dramatically changed on a mission to Damascus. Um, we can see that in our same chapter here in Philippians chapter 3. It, it's such a U-turn in his life that he actually refers to his past 
as all being uh, but uh, rubbish or garbage or waste in the midst of all this. But we also see this in Galatians chapter 1, verses 13 through 17, where he talks about, in the past, I persecuted the church, he says. And uh, in the past, he profited in the Jews' religion above many my equals. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb, sounding very much like an Old Testament prophet calling, he called me by his grace to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the heathen. Using historical language, the epistles of Paul are primary source documents coming from Paul himself. We're probably more familiar with the Damascus Road narrative in the book of Acts, but there it's secondary literature, as it were, someone talking about Paul. But here, this is Paul himself. Um, in fact, he talks about the end of Galatians chapter 6. He takes up the pen with his own hand. He writes with large letters to the Galatians, and he shares with them this epistle. But he talks here about this drastic change that happened in his life. First uh, Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 19 uh, discusses similarly there. Um, uh, 7 verse 19 I think I have the wrong text on that one, actually. But he uh, discusses elsewhere his coming to Christ in the Damascus Road. You can actually add there, if you wish, 1 Corinthians 15, how he is one born out of time, he says, when the risen Christ encounters him. And then fourth, he claimed to have seen uh, the risen Christ. And uh, let me just kind of get out a minute to see the bottom there. To have seen the risen Jesus. This is 1 Corinthians 15, 8 through 10, would be that text there. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 8 through 10. And last of all, he was seen in me also as one born out of due time. He was not a part of the original set of apostles. For I am the least of the apostles, and I am not meet to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. Uh, so those are, uh, so far, seven uh, facets there, uh, four facets rather. Fifth one here, he compared this appearance to the apostolic appearances. He seems to put this on an equal level with Christ appearing to the other apostles. In fact, his whole argument falls apart if this is not the case. If, if the counter he had with Christ was different in very nature than what he had with Peter, for example... He cannot be paralleled as the apostle to the Gentiles, the uncircumcised, that Peter was to the Jews, to the circumcised. They actually would not have parallel life events of seeing the risen Christ. And so he would see that in those terms. And he compared the resurrection to the final resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 12 and 20. Verse 12. Now if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead, speaking of the future... Verse 20, but now is Christ risen from the dead and become the firstfruits of them that slept. Now remember, he grew up as a Pharisaic Jew. We've already established that. And he had a sense of a future, so eschatological, future bodily, physical resurrection. And he's saying that Christ is the firstfruits of that. So whatever is the expectation in the future of bodily resurrection of humans, Christ was the very first one to experience that. Number seven, Paul understood Jesus and God differently in Galatians 4, 4 through 6, Romans 10, 9 and 13, and 1 Corinthians 8, 6. Um, let's go for a moment to Galatians 4, 4 through 6 for just a moment. So Galatians 4, 4 through 6. In, in my, own, um, my own opinion, Galatians is an early epistle around 48 through 49. I, I realize that there are 
some who would disagree with that. I, I believe in the South Galatian theory. I put it early, personally. The very early document in the New Testament uh, works. And Galatians 4, 4 through 6 says, But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his Son, that is, the Father sends the Son, made of a woman, made of the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because you are sons, God, so speaking up from above, this is God the Father, has sent forth the spirit of his son in your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. What do we have here? Around 48 to 49, we have incipient Trinitarianism. We already have that early, Father, Son, and Spirit working together in the life of a believer in one of the very first documents of the New Testament. Also think of Romans chapter 10, 9 through 13, because it's echoing Joel chapter 2. And Joel 2 says that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And here in Romans 10, 9, and 13, that word kurios, which in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of Hebrew scriptures, is now applied to Jesus Christ in particular. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So the Old Testament word for Jehovah or Yahweh is now applied to the risen Lord. This is a huge change, of course, in Paul's thought. I put up there also um, 1 Corinthians and chapter 8. But for this one, you have to understand the background of the Jewish Shema, which is a prayer that every faithful Jew would recite at least once a day. And Paul would have done this throughout his growing up years from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It's it's a key text about monotheism. There's only one God and and the unity of God. Hear, O Lord, or or Israel, rather, the Lord our God. God, the Lord, is one. But what does Paul do to that in 1 Corinthians 8, 6? Yet for us, there is one God. He takes the word God from Shema, and he applies it to the Father. The Father, of whom are all things, and we for him. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we live. He actually splits the Shema, which he would have recited every day of his life, growing up. And he applies one term to God the Father and another term to the risen Lord. And as Gentiles and as believers living in 21st century America, we're not amazed by the huge shift that appears here in 1 Corinthians 8, 6, and 7 based upon the way that the Apostle Paul would have been raised in his Jewish context because we don't recite the Shema every day of our lives. But this is a huge shift in his thinking and taking the Shema and applying two terms to Father and to Son respectively. The proclamation of Jesus' resurrection was basic to his gospel preaching. We've already seen 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. At least I've um, alluded to that and quoted that. But also in Philippians 2, 5 through 11, which is a highly poetic passage about Jesus Christ condescending and becoming a man and then a servant and then all the way to the point of death. And you might say that's the final step downward. You can't go lower than death. But remember, in the Roman culture, there is one step further down, even death on a cross because death on a cross is reserved for non-citizens who are poor and slaves and have done treasonous activities all the way down. And then you have the stair-step letter going back up. But God has exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, of things in heaven and things on earth and things on earth. And every, um, knee, every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So it's a basic proclamation. The proclamation of a returning Jesus was basic to Paul's kerygma in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 9 through 10. Here Paul is reciting uh, what he had told the Thessalonians, and he wasn't there very long in Thessalonica. 
But in his explanation of what the basic preaching was that he gave them, he said that they had to turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus Christ, which delivers us from the wrath to come. In fact, if you unpack 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, he begins early on by talking about faith, hope, and love. And in faith, they turn to God from idols. And in love, they serve the living and true God. And in hope, they're waiting, they're anticipating the coming of Christ. My point here being, though, Christ can't come back in his return if he didn't rise from the dead. There's no living being to come back if he didn't rise from the dead. And that implies, we can infer from that, uh, the basic belief in the risen Christ. He claimed Jesus' resurrection was the basis of the Christian faith. In fact, here he says, if he's not risen from the dead, our faith is in vain. It's empty and worthless. He called upon the testimony of witnesses to Jesus' resurrection. We saw that in 1 Corinthians 15, 6, including 500 witnesses. And if we're thinking in terms of the order of the writing of Scripture, 1 Corinthians 15 is probably written then earlier than the gospel narratives. Paul suffered persecution for his belief in the risen Jesus. Philippians 3, 8 through 10. You could actually add there, like I did earlier, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, as well with his listing of his resume of suffering. The context of the claim risen Jesus' message to him molded Paul's ministry in novel ways. So what do I mean by that? Well, look at the letter opening I have here on the PowerPoint slide to Romans chapter 1. Now, you have to understand in Greco-Roman letter writing, you normally went sender to recipient greeting. So we, we can use variables and say X to Y greeting right in a row. It's different than American modern letter writing where we have at the top the recipient, dear John, body of a letter, at the bottom the sender, sincerely or gratefully, Paul, right? That's our order, very formatted. In the ancient world, Greco-Roman letter writing, you actually did the opposite. You did sender to the recipient greeting or chirane. But what he does in verse 1, he gives the sender, Paul, a bonser, an apostle. But then he, he jumps from this reference to the gospel to a long explanation of the gospel. And then the recipients don't occur to verse 7. And we're not attuned to Greco-Roman letter writing. So when we read that, we're like, oh, wow, something huge has happened. He's changed the basic format of a letter because we're not used to that. We, we don't think in those terms of Greco-Roman letter writing, but he has. So using our versification, he's added about five verses in between sender and recipient. And in that midst, he talks about Christ uh, being declared to be the Son of God with power by his resurrection from the dead. Uh, churches founded by Paul continued to believe in the resurrection of Jesus. So here we talk about 1 Clement, which is written probably around the year 95. It's one of the apostolic fathers. To put that into context, it's around the same time period probably as the book of Revelation, which would be in the canon. Polycarp's Philippians, perhaps written in teens or 120 or so. So some examples. First Clement, let us understand, dearly beloved, how the master continually shows us the resurrection that shall be hereafter, wherever he made the Lord Jesus Christ the first fruit when he raised him from the dead. So Clement is writing to Corinth from Rome, Corinth being a Pauline-founded church. So this would be about 40 years after 1 Corinthians is written. They still believe in the resurrection. Polycarp writing the Philippians, Philippi, of course, started by Paul. And so in this case, uh, we are looking about 50 years after Paul wrote the Philippians. He refers to Christ who um, faced death, but God raised him from the dead. He was raised for our sakes and raised by God for us. And the Father raised him from the dead. They continued to believe in the resurrection half a century later. 
So this is all within historical context. I just remind us that we have literature written to the very same churches that Paul wrote to that are found in the New Testament 40 years later, 50 years later. Some of us have never read those letters, but they're written to the very same churches within decades that happen after that, and they talk about the resurrection. And then, 15th, the Pauline Kerygma is reflected in later Christian semi-credal materials, such as Ignatius' epistle to the Smyrnaeans. Uh, what we have here is the left-hand side, Paul to the Romans. We've already kind of echoed that. Who uh, The gospel mentions the prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as his earthly life was a descendant of David, who through the spirit of holiness was appointed to the Son of God, empowered by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Ignatius to the Smyrnaeans, around 115, 120, around that same time period, he develops that even further by talking about, yes, he was born of the flesh by the Virgin Mary, he's baptized, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, and he rose again. If you've ever heard of the so-called Apostles' Creed or Nicene Creed, very similar wording here, but in this case around the year 115, 120, it adds the word really a lot, like it really happened, it really happened, it really happened, because Ignatius was fighting heretics called Docetists, who didn't believe Jesus Christ really had a human body. So it really happened. He had a body that was crucified. He had a body that was baptized, and he had a body that rose again from the dead. Ignatius actually shares a narrative about Christ appearing to Peter in particular after the resurrection and saying, look at me, I have a body, I'm not like a ghost-like figure. That may in fact be what's alluded to in 1 Corinthians 15, where Jesus appears to Peter in particular, and it seems to be outside the context of the other 11. So those are some historical evidences for the resurrection, which is the foundation of our living hope. I know that we covered a lot of material here in our first session, and I went about five minutes over, but I hope you'll forgive me for that. But lots of good material. If you have any questions during a break time or lunch time, feel free to ask me, but thank you for your time. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you that we can approach you because of the risen Lord Jesus Christ, who is our high priest. He is a living priest, Father. He has shown us a living way, and we are grateful for that living hope. So we praise you through the Son and the power of the Spirit, we pray. Amen.